Well, thanks very much, Verone. I know you're watching from home. And all those who were helping to put the service together, it's great that we can do some pre-recorded stuff and some live stuff, just as a reminder that we are all still in this together. Um, I've had people calling from the congregation and sometimes saying, how is so-and-so doing? Or, or I wonder about this person. And here's my challenge, and I said this last week too. If someone is on your heart, if God has placed someone on your heart and you have their contact information, call them. Ask how they're doing. Don't go through me. It's like, it's like my brothers do with my mom. I find out how all my brothers are doing by asking my mom. It's not a good habit. So encourage one another. If you have the ability to contact someone else in the church this afternoon, God has placed someone on your heart reach out to them, say hello, encourage them, email, phone call, a long letter, whatever it takes. Let's continue to encourage each other uh, during these days. Well, I might get a few letters after this sermon. We are looking at Revelation, and uh, who thought this would be a good idea? I mean, Revelation in 20 minutes or less on a Sunday morning uh, by a sheer amateur. So this will be interesting. I tried to pawn this off on Samuel, and he said he was busy, uh, that guy. And then Eric, but I was a little too fearful of what he would do with the text. So it's up to me. Uh, we are at the end of our binge reading the Bible series, and we, of course, now have to look at the book of Revelation. And uh, it's very interesting because this book stirs up all kinds of emotions. Uh, nobody approaches this book from a sheerly logical perspective, right? It stirs up all kinds of interpretations as well. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton wrote this, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> and we have wild commentators and wild commentaries about the book of Revelation. Maybe you've come across some of them. Maybe you're one of them. And so it'll be interesting as we go through this. Over the years, we've had so many different interpretations, but especially in the last 120 years, there's been such a renewed interest generation after generation in the book of Revelation. I'm sure you've all heard of the infamous Mark of the Beast. It comes out of Revelation 13. And uh, in my time and in your time, it's been associated with all different kinds of things. It's been associated with credit card numbers or social insurance numbers or barcodes. Or even I read about it being associated with amusement park tickets being the mark of the beast. And now, of course, what is it associated with for some people? The vaccine. And so it's interesting how people throughout generations have been desperate to identify the mark of the beast. Also, the Antichrist. And by the way, the word Antichrist doesn't appear anywhere in Revelation, uh, but the concept is still kind of applied or associated with Revelation. And the Antichrist has been applied to lots of different people. I'm tempted to ask you to shout out to your favorite Antichrist, but I won't do that right now. I know it's been applied to lots of people like even Ronald Reagan for a time, if those of you who remember who he was, and uh, Saddam Hussein, Mikhail Gorbachev. You remember that time? Because he had the mark as well. I mean, he must have been. Um, but especially the Pope. 
The poor Pope, and this comes from, you know, kind of an evangelical fundamentalist uh, Christianity. The Pope has been the favorite antichrist of all time. I remember being in Belfast, pardon me, Northern Ireland, and Ian Paisley yelling out the window at the Pope, Antichrist! You know, he was yelling at, at the Pope at that time, and I'm like, wow, what's going on? Well, this happens over and over again as we turn to Revelation. There's kind of a desperation to apply what we read to current historical situation. And that's so interesting, and I think sometimes distracts us from some of the power and the purpose of the writing. Well, I think people have one of two approaches to Revelation. Either we fixate on it, it's like all we read, or what's the other approach? We avoid it altogether, because it just feels like we can't handle this. And really, that's a shame. We, we rarely turn to Revelation for devotional purposes. We read the Psalms. We'll read the Gospels. We might even pick up something in the Old Testament. But Revelation isn't often read as devotional material. And that's a shame because at its core, and if you don't remember anything else from this morning, remember this, at its core, Revelation is a call to worship. At its very core, Revelation is a call to worship. That is the essence of the book of Revelation, that the Lamb is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. Jesus is worthy of our praise. It's a call to worship. And if you get nothing else out of this, go to Revelation and just read it as a call to worship. Well, people have been predicting the end of the world since the beginning of time. And so my caution today and my strategy as we come into Revelation is maybe to rein back some of those predictions. Just rein it in a little bit and allow this book to kind of sit in its own context for a little while. So instead of just rushing to apply what we find in the book to current situation, let's see what the situation was when it was first written. That's a great starting point for any book of the Bible. Well, what are we dealing with? What kind of literature? We've talked about this through the sermon series that there's poetry and there's narrative and there's kind of a prose discourse. What are we dealing with when we come to Revelation? Well, in the passage that was read for us, we find out that we're dealing actually with three kinds of literature. Maybe that's what makes it so complicated. The first kind of literature we're dealing with is Revelation literature. Now, Revelation literature, the word that we read in Revelation chapter 1, is actually the word apocalypsis. So we could also say it's apocalyptic literature. But the problem is, when I say that word, we already are jumping to the end of the world kind of stuff. But apocalypsis just means revelation. It just means revealing something that's hidden. And so the intent of Revelation isn't to hide things and mask them up and make them more difficult. Actually, the intent of Revelation is to reveal, to reveal something about Jesus and about this world and about our relationship to both. And so this is apocalyptic literature, and it has a strong tradition within the Jewish context. Uh, we see that in, the, say, the book of Daniel. There's some apocalyptic kind of literature but there's also apocalyptic literature that doesn't make it into the Bible. So there's a long tradition, Jewish tradition, of apocalyptic writing. And the idea is that they use images and symbols 
to reveal a transcendent perspective on the world. So the idea is to draw the curtain back, not so that we can enter into a different reality, but so that we can see our reality from a different perspective. That's what apocalyptic writing is meant to do. So that's the first kind of writing that we find. Apocalyptic, not end of the world, don't jump there yet, don't go there, uh, but this revelation kind of writing, images and symbols that reveal this transcendent aspect to the world. Well, the second part of literature that we're, we find and it's listed for us in that first passage that was read um, is prophecy. We're told this is also a prophecy. And prophecy in the Christian church was meant to be spoken. It's either spoken or it's read out, out loud. And so we find even in those first few verses that this book was meant to be read out loud as a prophecy for the church. And those that listened right to the end would receive a blessing. So that's an encouragement to listen all the way through the sermon and not just the first parts. I won't mention any names, but... Right, Doug? So that we need to listen all the way through because there's this blessing because this is meant to be a prophetic word that comes to the church and it's meant to be spoken so that the hearers receive a blessing. Now, when I say prophecy, again, we have to be careful that we're not thinking of some kind of fortune-telling of the future. But this idea of the prophetic word is the prophet speaking God's truth into a present reality. And so that's really important for us. And so in the Revelation, uh, there's all sorts of things drawn from the old covenant prophets, from Isaiah and from Ezekiel. And it's not, never referenced. You can't find footnotes. But if you know some of those prophets, which is great if you do, then you'll see them recur again and again in Revelation because that's the kind of literature that it is. Okay, one last form of literature before we move on. So we've got Revelation literature, apocalyptic prophetic, but this one is probably the most important for accessibility, and that is, this is a letter. This is a letter. We talked about this last Sunday. The epistles were very carefully crafted letters that were sent to specific people, and I think we really have to keep this in mind. This was a letter written to the seven churches. Now, the number seven becomes very significant. It's the number of completion, and so, in a sense, it's not just the seven churches, but it's the complete church. It's all the churches for all the time. But there were actually these seven churches. And so, what I'm trying to say here is that there was real people who were facing real circumstances, real challenges. And this letter was written to them, not to confuse them, but to comfort them and to bring them hope. I don't know if you've ever approached Revelation with that mentality. I think we approach Revelation expecting to be confused by it. But when you read Revelation, ask yourself this question. Where's the comfort? Where's the hope? Because that was the intent. It was, it was meant to help these seven churches to continue and not give up. And it was interesting because it was a circular letter. So it would be read in this church, and then the next church, and then the next church. And I can only imagine, I don't know if churches were competitive back then like they are today, but can you imagine sitting there and waiting for your church to be listed because the next couple of chapters, uh, the writer, John, gives very specific directions to each of these churches. And can you imagine waiting, oh, what's he going to say about Ephesus? Yeah, <laughs> can't wait. Those guys over there, they're terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and hearing what 
what said to your church and thinking, hey, we got off kind of light on this one. I don't know if they did that. But that's the idea is that it's read around to all these churches and you get a sense of what the Spirit is saying to the whole church. And so here's my thing. Our fatal assumption that we could make that will really sidetrack us from accessing Revelation is that Revelation is simply about the end of the world. That would be a fatal assumption to make. Instead, I think we have to be really careful to understand that these were real people in a real time facing real circumstances. And this was meant to be comfort and hope. Well, what were they facing? What is the setting that's part of the backdrop to Revelation? Well, different people put different time frame on when this book was written, but most would say it is after the fall of Jerusalem. And so the author of Revelation had experienced a catastrophe. Uh, he wrote his book not long after 60,000 Roman soldiers had stormed Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed, burned down the walls, they set things on fire, and they, they killed, bodies were piled up in the streets as they put down a Jewish revolt. Now, for some of the earliest followers of Jesus who were Jewish, so many of them, this was incomprehensible. It was inconceivable that this would happen, that Jerusalem would fall in this way. Because in their mind, they really were expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime, but to come back in power and take the rightful seat on David's throne in Jerusalem and conquer Rome. They really expected that, and we get hints of that as we read through the New Testament. But now Rome has gone and decimated, destroyed Jerusalem. Now what? Where were all the promises? What was Jesus going to do? Did he lie to us? Like their faith is being rocked. It's being shattered. They are reading this book at a time when they feel that their whole world is doomed. That's the sense. They feel there's no way out. Where can we find hope? And so the purpose of this book, uh, according to Richard Baucom, in a book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation, it doesn't sound that interesting, but it's actually quite fascinating. Uh, he says this, In a sense, the whole book is about the way the Christians of the seven churches may, by being victorious, with their specific situations of their own churches, enter the new Jerusalem. This is about how the Christians in those contexts can find a way to mourn the passing of Jerusalem, but also hold out hope for the new Jerusalem, which God is going to provide and to keep moving forward. And how do I enter into the new Jerusalem provided by God? Well, we don't have time to go chapter by chapter. Maybe you're thankful for that, um, but hopefully you do spend some time reading it. So we can't get down to the nitty gritty, but I do want to touch on three great themes in Revelation, because this is one of the ways to read it. Instead of trying to figure out all the kind of characters and all the codes, read it for the great themes, the theological themes, and for this call to worship. So here's three themes out of many. The first one is this. Victory is certain. That was one of the most important themes that comes out in the book of Revelation, especially the victory of Jesus. Remember, the, the people are wondering, Jesus didn't show up. What's going to happen now? And it tells us, behold, I come quickly. Victory is certain, and victory is certain in Jesus. But it's not the kind of way that we assume victory will be achieved. 
It's actually very consistent with the gospel message, and that is victory will be achieved through sacrifice. In chapter 5, the author, John, he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah coming. And in a sense, this is it. This is what they've been waiting for. The great lion of the tribe of Judah. It's like King David returning to his throne. But then it says, he turns and looks and sees not a lion, but a lamb that has been slain. And he's like, that's surprising. And it even happened in that first chapter that we, that we read together. He hears one thing and he assumes something and then he turns and looks and he sees something very unexpected. And so this path to victory was not going to be, come from this conquering line of Judah, but actually going to come through the sacrificial lamb. The way of sacrifice is still the path to victory. That's what the gospel teaches us, and that's consistent in the book of Revelation. And in fact, as we go on to chapter 7, a very controversial passage about the 144,000, with 144,000 again, uh, the author hears this number. He says, I hear the number, 144,000. Choice people taken from these 12 tribes. He's imagining a great army going to come to conquer. But then it says, then I turned and looked, and there was a multitude that no one could number. And they were clothed with the clothing of the martyrs. And so the, the message here, whatever else you make of it, the message here is this, that the way to victory for the follower of Jesus is the same as it was for Jesus himself. The path to victory for Jesus was through sacrifice. And the path to victory for the follower of Jesus is to lay our lives down as well. That's part of the message of Revelation for a church that was seeing persecution, a church that was seeing actual martyrdom. And the word martyr in Greek is the word that we translate testimony or witness. That was their witness, was actually the giving of their lives. And so this is a really important theme, that we will gain the victory the same way that Jesus does, by laying down our lives. This is what Jesus said, didn't he? Didn't he say that those who try and keep their lives or gain their lives, who hold on to their lives like this, they'll end up losing their lives. But those who give up their lives will gain it. And that's the the upside-down kingdom that we find in Jesus. And we find that again here in Revelation. I know some of us are, are looking in our own lives for victory. I think we're looking for victory perhaps in our marriages or in our families. We're looking for victory in our neighborhoods over evil, over sin. Uh, But the path to victory is by laying down our lives so that they might be reborn in Christ. That's the path to victory. How do we lay down our life for our spouse? How do we lay down our lives for our kids? How do we lay down our lives for our neighbors? So just as the way that Jesus served us, so we are called to serve one another. So victory is certain. That's a big theme, but it's found through sacrifice. Okay, here's the second big theme that I want to highlight. Compromise is deadly. There's an incredible battle that rages all through the book of Revelation. And our temptation is to say, okay, what nation is that? And what people is this? And and you can go there and read all that, but don't miss the bigger point that there's a huge battle that rages all the time that's a competition for the loyalty of our hearts. For the loyalty of our hearts. 
This, this competition comes down to one question. Who is Lord? That's one of the fundamental questions in the book of Revelation. Who is Lord? In the Roman times, what did you have to say? Hail Caesar, right? Caesar is Lord. And if you said that, things could go pretty well for you. You could trade and you could have money and you could have influence. You could live a life as a citizen of Rome. But the problem was the followers of Jesus came up and they had a new saying. What was their saying? Jesus is Lord. I mean, we sing it and we say it and it rolls off our tongues and nobody comes and arrests us. And that's pretty amazing. But at this time, saying Jesus is Lord could get you killed because the competition is between Caesar and Jesus in that sense. Who is Lord? Who owns the loyalty of your heart? But it's not just that. There's also these competing values that are at work that we find through Revelation, the competing values of the two kingdoms. There are, well, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God. And it becomes very clear that the values are different. The kingdom of this world, the values are greed and violence and power and pride. And the value of the kingdom of our God is generosity and peace and sacrifice and humility. And so there's this temptation that comes to the churches and comes to us even today that competes for our affections and competes for our values. And the word here in Revelation is don't compromise, don't give in. It might be easier simply to go the way of Caesar. It might be easier to go the way of the world. And don't do that. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's deadly. And that's a big theme in Revelation. Compromise is deadly. Okay, here's a third theme that I'll highlight. And hopefully you'll discover some others as you read through it. The third theme is really important. And that is this. Endurance is required. Don't give up. Don't give up. And we find this all throughout the letters. Don't give up in doing good, even though we grow weary of doing it. Uh, don't give up meeting together, even though sometimes it's difficult. Uh, Paul says, run the race with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Uh, Christine and Kira and I have been watching through the, the Marvel movie series. And yesterday we were watching uh, this kind of battle scene. And Christine and I were watching the, uh, the combatants run toward each other over an impossibly long distance. And we both commented saying, that's a bad idea because by the time you get to the actual battle, you'd be completely exhausted, at least I would. And so these guys running, they're using up all of their energy in a sprint. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. We need that kind of endurance perspective. We need that idea, as Eugene Peterson says, we need a long obedience in the same direction. That's discipleship. That's Christian discipleship. And that's the encouragement here in the book of Revelation. Endure. Keep going. Don't give up. It's the exact same thing as Jesus says, those who endure to the end will be saved. But it's not works salvation. It's not, if I just keep doing good things, then I'll get into heaven. It's enduring in the sense of keep on believing in the testimony and the work of Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on believing that he's sufficient for all that we need. So in Revelation, we see that we must be willing to suffer. 
We must be willing to give our all for Christ, but we also must be willing to persevere until the end in order to obtain the final reward. Persevere in the sense of keep on believing. Well, the story of Scripture begins in a garden, but it ends in a city, which is actually quite fascinating. As God weaves together all that is good and holy and puts together the ideal city. Eden is lost in Genesis, but Eden is restored at the end of Revelation. Revelation 22 and verse 1 says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That's the great hope. That's the kind of city. That's the new Jerusalem that God is preparing for those who follow him. And so with that great hope, we understand that victory is certain, but don't compromise and don't give up. That's the message of Revelation. And so I want to encourage us today, and this is just a message of encouragement, even as you read through Revelation. Hear that call to worship. Read the great themes. But remember this. Jesus even said, in this world, we're going to have trouble. In this world, we're going to have suffering. And Jesus says, I don't want you, Father, to take them out of the world, but I want you to keep them in the world. So don't lose hope because Jesus has overcome the world. Well, right at the end of the book of Revelation will be our conclusion for this sermon for the series. And it says simply this, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it together and that we can pray together and that we can hear your voice even today in this place or in our homes, wherever we're listening to this. Father, help us to understand this book, this letter, in such a way that it draws us closer to your son. Because, Father, we need that kind of encouragement. Even when things in our world seem to be falling apart, we look to Jesus, who has overcome the world. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.